This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellum. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, what started as a state highway expansion project has turned into a massive archaeological dig. What, what makes the site significant is not really the artifacts, but the structures, the house floors, the posts, the fire hearths. So we have evidence of the actual structure of the community. Plus, the intricacies of playing the violin. You know, I have been playing for many years, and honestly, I still find it fascinating of how much is going on <laughs> and how much can go wrong. <laughs> Natasha Korsakova performs in our Furman Gardner studio, and Spade Robinson left Hollywood to come here to make a movie. And when I did come to visit, what I found was uh, absolutely beautiful landscape, different types of terrain, um, and a warm and... Um, accepting type of people. First, the news from NPR. The Momentary in Bentonville presents award-winning indie rock band Always with guest Julia Jacklin Saturday, September 9th. This concert is part of The Momentary's Live on the Green series. Tickets on sale now at themomentary.org. Good Wednesday. This is Ozarks at Large for August 23rd, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Later this hour, the Music Education Initiative and the Fayetteville Public Library are partners Friday night, bringing live music with Divas on Fire to the library. Brian Cram, musician, promoter, and the owner of George's Majestic Lounge, will be honored during the evening. We'll give you more details later today. First, the Arkansas Department of Transportation held an open meeting in April to discuss widening Highway 112 through parts of Washington and Benton County. But as work began, artifacts were found. An archaeology team has spent the summer unearthing an archaic indigenous base camp. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, the site could be among the oldest semi-intact sites discovered in the southeastern United States. In a narrow, forested, spring-fed valley along Clear Creek, a team of archaeologists slowly uncover long-buried structures and artifacts inside a hand-dug pit. Jack Rossin, senior archaeologist at Chronicle Heritage, headquartered in Memphis, says his firm was hired by the Arkansas Department of Transportation to investigate this site in phases in advance of a planned highway expansion. Yes, they do shovel testing in the phase one, and the shovel tests produced hundreds of artifacts in these small shovel tests. And then when we did phase two, we came up with thousands of artifacts. And now we're dealing with hundreds of thousands of artifacts. Two archaeologists use trowels to carefully scrape dirt off the surface of a stone hearth long buried in this place. Nearby, two more team members remove centuries of topsoil from another section to explore what's beneath. The excavation measures 60 square meters and is marked with stakes and strings into research units. Every bit of black earth removed during the dig is loaded into buckets and carefully sifted through large wood-framed screens. So they're screening here, which means they're pulling out everything from fire-cracked rock to small flakes, which are the waste product of making stone tools, to the actual stone tools themselves, to house daub, the clay that was smathered, that was smeared on top of the houses, to whatever else we find. Rawson says the team's also finding lots of stone projectiles and tools from various eras. This site probably begins late in the Paleo-Indian period, about 10,000 years ago. Then you have 
the early archaic and then the middle archaic which is about six or seven thousand years ago and then there's the late archaic and then it switches to the woodland period and that's when pottery begins and farming begins we don't have a lot of that here we do have a little bit of the late prehistoric or the mississippian who are the mound builders who are only about 500 to 1000 years ago radiocarbon testing will confirm the age of the materials unearthed from this site what, what makes the site significant is not really the artifacts, but the structures, the house floors, the posts, the fire hearths. So we have evidence of the actual structure of the community, not just artifacts, and that's pretty unusual for this age. If the radiocarbon dates turn out the way I think they will, then there's very little to compare it to. Evidence shows the various sized dwellings were framed with log posts clad in river cane and covered in clay to seal out water. The encampment was built above Clear Creek's floodplain, which protected the remnants from being lost to erosion under this farm field for centuries. We dug a site 30 miles from here that was a companion site, and it did not have preservation of house floors and fire hearths like this site has. Rawson walks over to a folding table and opens a binder filled with the team's daily handwritten records and drawings of found structures. The pages are muddy. Well, we have different houses, small, circular, sleeping huts. We have one structure that looks longer, maybe it's 40 or 50 feet long, that was a communal cookhouse. And we have a lot of posts, a lot of fire hearths, and I'm still trying to have to figure out which hearths go with which house floors because there, there's one house floor on top of another, on top of another, on top of another. This base camp is among a constellation of prehistoric camps and bluff shelters on the Ozarks, Rossin says, continuously rebuilt over millennia until that lifeway was abandoned between 900 and 1100 A.D. Over centuries, the people hunted bison and eastern elk deer and bear, and gathered seasonal wild grapes and berries, tree nuts, herbs, and plants. Rawson dumps one of dozens of white polyethylene storage bags containing freshly excavated artifacts onto a folding table. Each bag is meticulously marked by date, inventory, number, excavation unit, and depth. Some artifacts are wrapped in aluminum foil to protect surface sediments for testing. All right, let's see. I wanted to show you this in particular because this is that, I was talking about this mud daub quite a lot. You can see there's the wall of the house. So that would be the interior, that's, that's the smooth wall. And you might be able to detect fingerprints in... Maybe. Certainly the cane impressions are in here in some of them pieces. So what would happen is this thing, the, the mud daub could be over the roof, it could be over the walls. When these huts burned or collapsed, that roof and all that mud just goes everywhere. And it's fired because, you know, it'd be, it would be exposed to the sun for... 15 or 20 years the life of the house and that would kind of sun that would sun bake the daub. This archaeology team has endured extreme summer heat and heavy rains to remain on schedule to complete excavation by the end of this month. Osage tribal leaders have consulted with State Department of Transportation officials in advance of the project. 
all artifacts will be transported to Chronicle Heritage headquarters in Memphis to be washed, sorted, analyzed, and cataloged. Rawson will write up findings in a technical report, as well as a book chronicling what could be a landmark expedition. But he also plans to author a special pamphlet to share with the local residents here. The community has been really supportive. They bring us brownies and cookies and salsa and guacamole and donuts and everything there. Pizza, they're fantastic. The, the local people have been wonderful to us. The curated collection, Rawson says, will be returned to the landholder to keep or donate. The excavation site, however, will not be preserved. The Arkansas Department of Transportation plans to bulldoze it, as well as the historic stone farmhouse nearby, to build a roundabout as part of a local highway improvement project. Yeah, so it is sad that the site is, will be destroyed by the construction project, but it's also nice that we get to investigate the site and learn about it and tell the story first. Radiocarbon test results confirming the age of this prehistoric Ozark base camp will be revealed tentatively this autumn. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. You can find photos from the dig site and much more when you head to our website, ozarksatlarge.com. The Shiloh Museum of Ozark History will explore how archaeology can help us understand more about food throughout history in the Ozarks. Dr. Michelle Rathgaber, the Educational Outreach Coordinator with the Arkansas Archaeological Survey, will be at the museum Tuesday night to explain how archaeologists have used artifacts to learn about plants and animals used as food by people of the past. There will also be a chance to take part in a foraging simulation. The talk is at 6.30 Tuesday night and is, sad trombone sound effect here, already at capacity. However, if you want to be added to a wait list, you can email the Shiloh Museum through the website shilohmuseum.org. University of Arkansas political science professor Patrick Stewart recently published a book examining the 2016 and 2020 presidential primary debates. The book focuses on the role played by the studio audience during debates through their applause, cheering, laughter, and booing of candidates, and how this affects reporters and everyone watching at home. Our debates are the one time during the electoral cycle that we're able to take a look at our candidates and get an unbiased look at who they are. They're not stage managed, they aren't preformed, they aren't already edited into a specific sort of marketing brand during the debates. We get to see them and how they react to questions and to comments in real time. You can hear more in the latest edition of Short Talks from the Hill. Listen at KUAF.com, at arkansasresearch.uark.edu, or wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come today, here's a twist on a familiar story. To make a movie, Spade Robinson left Los Angeles and came to Northwest Arkansas. Actually, I had never even considered this region. I it just would have never crossed my mind, but um, one of my creative partners lived here, and uh, we had been talking about the film on the phone for months on end. And she was saying, you know, maybe you should consider here. You have to come out here and visit. I was like, oh, okay. Um, 
And when I did come to visit, what I found was uh, absolutely beautiful landscape, different types of terrain, um, and a warm and um, accepting type of people. Spade Robinson talks about her film in progress, Late Bloomers, and about the table read she's hosting in conjunction with the Arkansas Cinema Society in Fayetteville this weekend. That's in about 20 minutes on today's show. I don't want to think too much. The Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series, sponsored by McDonald's, continues Friday, September 1st, Labor Day, with Daz and Brie. This Emmy-nominated rock and soul, woman-fronted duo from Little Rock combines acid rock instrumentation with operatic and theatrical elements. The Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series leads up to an all-day celebration of KUAF's 50 years on the air to wrap up the series. For more, KUAF.com forward slash summer concerts. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. And I'm Daniel Carruth. Today is National Poll Worker Recruitment Day. Jennifer Price is the Director of Elections in Washington County, and she says poll workers are the heart and soul of elections. Without poll workers, we wouldn't be able to have polling locations in local neighborhoods and in your communities. And so we are constantly recruiting poll workers uh, to be able to um, provide accessible voting for everyone. Price says the Election Commission provides training and support for newcomers, and you'll be surrounded by experienced poll workers. On Election Day in a presidential election, like we'll see in 2024, Washington County is expected to need more than 400 poll workers. Price says that while she considers being a poll worker a volunteer opportunity, it's not fully a volunteer position. But you do get paid. And so it's a nice bonus uh, to be able to, in essence, volunteer your time, but also get a little money. Price says if you're nervous about signing up to be a poll worker by yourself and you'd rather have a friend join you, that's strongly encouraged. And she'll be sure to pair you up at a polling location together. So that you feel a little bit more comfortable uh, rather than just showing up uh, to do something on your own. So if that makes you feel more comfortable coming in and applying, we definitely encourage you to do that because it's a bonus for you, but also a bonus for us. We get an extra poll worker. You can find more information about how to sign up to be a poll worker at our website, OzarksAtLarge.com. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders met yesterday with state legislators from the Democrat Party and members of the Black Caucus to discuss the week-long controversy over the AP African American Studies course being taught in Arkansas. Senator Clark Tucker of Little Rock attended the meeting, and he says he feels there's been some communication difficulties from the Department of Education and the governor's office around the AP class. They assured us, and we asked them to get this message out to the public, they assured us that the course would be taught this year and that the course is not going to be removed from the schools that have elected to proceed with the course. And I think that's a very important point for the public to understand. We'll hear more from Senator Tucker in a conversation on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large about the course and a scholarship fund being raised at Little Rock Central, one of the schools continuing to teach AP African American Studies. We reached out to the governor's office for comment about the meeting, and they said, quote, Governor Sanders was happy to meet with Democratic representatives and members of the Black Caucus to discuss the importance of education in Arkansas and the process by which AP courses meet the standards in the state. She looks forward to continuing to work with them 
and all teachers in schools to ensure Arkansas law is being followed, end quote. We also reached out yesterday to the Department of Education for clarity and to once again ask for specific examples of indoctrination in the coursework. They have not yet responded to our latest emails. The Northwest Arkansas National Airport is one of 90 airports the Federal Aviation Administration will hold runway safety meetings with through the end of September. The FAA has seen a string of close calls with airports across the nation, such as runway incursions and near misses in the sky. In a statement, Tim Errol, the chief operating officer for the FAA's air traffic organization, says sharing information is critical to improving safety, and these meetings help achieve the goal of zero close calls. These meetings will bring airport stakeholders together to identify unique risks to surface safety and develop plans to mitigate or eliminate them completely. The National Science Foundation has awarded more than $925,000 to a University of Arkansas professor to study the effects of climate change on biodiversity. Adam Sapelsky is a professor of biological sciences and plans to use the grant to support experiments on freshwater damselflies, a predatory insect similar to a dragonfly. In his proposal, Sapelsky says species that are better at avoiding predators are often poorer competitors and reproduce less. The research looks to develop an understanding of how climate warming affects trade-offs between competition and predation, specifically through the damselfly. The Arkansas Ultra Trail Series will host the Mount Nebo Trail Run this Saturday. This free-to-enter race will begin at 7 a.m. at the top of Mount Nebo State Park near Dardanelle. Despite high temperatures, runners will remain cool thanks to the high altitude. Race coordinator Tom Aspell says the top of the mountain sits significantly cooler than its base. Our trail running came around because a lot of the trail runners wanted something fun and not terribly long for in the middle of the summer, like August, you know, when it's hot. So I said, hey, Nebo is, you know, 2,000 feet above sea level, so it's usually about 8, 10 degrees cooler. Runners will also keep their own times during this event. Aspel says this way of timekeeping was fairly common 20 years ago, and the athletes will usually keep each other honest. I mean, that's just the old way it was done. You know, back, go back 20, 30 years ago, so I went a 50K out on the Washita Trail. You came in, if you were first in, there was nobody there. There was just a chart and a time. You kept your time. And it went on the honor system, you know. And most people are pretty decent about being on the honor system. Post-run food will be provided at no charge. Arkansas' soccer match with Oregon tomorrow night in Fayetteville will be moved back an hour because of the heat. First kick is now scheduled for 7.30. The Northwest Arkansas Naturals will play Tulsa at Arvest Ballpark tonight. Last night, the Drillers defeated the Nats 7-4 and remain a half game out of first place. Tonight's first pitch, set for This is Ozarks at Large. This week, violinist and author Natasha Korsakova is performing several times in Fayetteville 
and Fort Smith. Fortunately for us, one of our stops was in the Furman Garner Performance Studio yesterday.
There was a Baroque Italian piece, uh, Chacon, by Tommaso Vitali. There was an excerpt of Chacon. Natasha Korsakova in our Furman Garner Performance Studio yesterday. She has several solo CDs and appears on several more and performs around the world. She's also a best-selling crime novelist. Her public performances this week include a concert at the Butterfield Trail Village Performance Hall Friday night and another concert Saturday night at the First Presbyterian Church in Fort Smith. Natasha says she's been around music her entire life. It's actually funny because um, I don't remember it myself. My mom said that at about maybe two and two, two and a half years old, I suddenly started singing and I was hitting every note in a correct way. I don't absolutely remember doing it, but she says it must have been true. And there they thought that I may have a perfect pitch or whatever, and uh, decided, yes, well, that, that kid could play something in the future. Yeah. They were right. Her playing is almost as enjoyable to watch as to hear. Her violin bow and fingers moving in an intricate fashion. You know, I have been playing for many years, and honestly, I still find it fascinating of how much is going on <laughs> and how much can go wrong. <laughs> what we hope is not happening, but uh, I think that's uh, one of the main reasons why we have to start ideally very early to learn an instrument. I mean, I mean, if you would like to become a professional, because otherwise I always say, you know, starting to play instrument is never too late. But if you would like to be become a professional musician, yeah, you better start five, six, seven years old. Then already they say like at eight, it can be already a little bit more difficult. But exactly what you mentioned about bow holding, that's the trickiest maybe thing of all. And on the violin, we don't have, uh, like, for instance, uh, I think on the guitar, it's like you see where to place the fingers to hit the note. We don't. We just have to ha- make it in, like, intuition or with practicing, you know. And on the piano, you can see the notes. Violin, violoncello, you don't. So that makes it more difficult. She's been named Artist of the Year in Chile and Italy. She's performed with dozens of chamber orchestras, including the Vienna Chamber Orchestra, the Icelandic Symphony, the Philharmonic Orchestra of the Dutch Radio Broadcasting, and she presented a concert for Pope Benedict XVI. She says she still has musical moments, though, of euphoria. Thank God, yes, yes, I do, because otherwise it would be a little, you know, <laughs> if it becomes too normal. Um, actually, there's always, um, speaking about new new piece, um, there's always a moment suddenly, and I don't know why it happens, but one day it's just going better. It's a turning point somehow, and it's a great feeling. Because like exactly like the day before, you try here and there, and it doesn't really work the way you want to. And then the next day, it's suddenly, yeah, I don't know why exactly that day. <laughs> and then there's her other artistic title, novelist. In the past six years, she's written three crime novels, all involving murder and involving the world of music. For me, um, the point was if I have, if I write a novel or a crime novel, then the field where it has to be set or the, the world should be something that I really know very well. And since I grew up in musical families, since I started playing concerts at a very young age, I know this world of music and it makes much easier to set a novel there, you know, so I, I hardly need it even to to make a research. Well, hardly any research for the musical elements of the books. For the murder part of the murder mystery, that, she says, requires a creative leap. I cannot even, like my boyfriend says, I cannot even argue in the right way. I'm very, I try, you know, to to avoid (laughs) to argue. So, but something happens. On paper, I do kill. 
Yes. <laughs> and um, research, well, that was very, very spontaneous. And I, I, you know, why I write murder mysteries? Because this is just something that fascinates me, how the person becomes to murder. What are the reasons? What are something behind? What is going on? And I really, I, I would never be able to make it myself. This is the case, what I was saying, never, never. Uh, but the others uh, has done. So that was a little bit of, of the most important point why I decided I wanted to try maybe with this story to come behind the reasons of uh, a person being able to do something like that. Her novels have been translated into Italian, German, and Czech. No English language publisher just yet. But what does translate in any language is her music. Each performance, including the music she played in the Furman Garner Performance Studio yesterday, performed with the same 19th century violin. Yeah, it was built in 1870 by uh, the great Jean-Baptiste Villaume. And what is amazing about Villaume is that we probably, or I mean, a lot of people know that the old violins, the most mostly appreciated or valued are Italians. It's even today, I mean, there are great also American violin makers, German violin makers, but Italian, they have some mystery and magic about them. Well, Jean-Baptiste Villon is French, and French violins are less appreciated than Italians, but with this exception, because when um, I read about, for instance, great violins on, I don't know, whatever you can say, Christie's uh, uh, saying, Stradivari, Guarneri del Gesù, Guadagnini, Galliano, and Vium. And that's the only French which is being named with the Italians. Yeah, so there must be something about. <laughs> Natasha Korsakova in the Furman Garner Performance Studio yesterday. She'll perform tomorrow night as part of the Butterfield Trail Village stage series, that concert for Butterfield residents only. Then Friday night, her concert in the Butterfield Trail Performance Hall, open to the public. $20 tickets can be purchased at the door. Saturday night, she performs at the First Presbyterian Church in Fort Smith. And yesterday, she played one more selection for us. This will be variations on theme of Arcangela Corelli, La Follia. Thank you. 
Every day, you hear lots of news on Ozarks at Large. But have you ever wanted to test your listening skills? Now you can with KUAF's Word Puzzle. It's just like your other favorite daily word games that feature five-letter words and color-based hints. But you might even get a hint from the previous day's Ozarks at Large broadcast. Go to KUAF's website or newsword.org slash KUAF to start playing daily puzzles now. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, a new scholarship at Little Rock Central High School to honor top students in the AP African American Studies course. Central High, of course, is included in the course material because if you're going to study African American Studies in the United States, uh, there's a, a mark in that that can't be taken away that happened at Central High. A conversation with State Senator Clark Tucker about the Ruthie Walls Scholarship. That's tomorrow at noon and at 7 p.m. on KUAF Public Radio. This is Ozarks at Large. Matthew, let me give you a three-sentence film pitch. Okay. After making a suicide pact, best friends Sunday and Gigi go on their last road trip together, leaving behind their failed careers and relationships. Sunday's grip on reality slowly unravels as her decision to renege on the pact haunts her every move. In a cinematic, mind-bending thriller... Sunday discovers affirmation for life. I'm already stressed. Like like my my heart rate, I think, just jumped about 15 beats a minute. All right. Well, that is the description for the movie Late Bloomers. Saturday, there will be a public table read of the script led by the author of the script, Spade Robinson. The reading will be at Theater Squared, co-hosted by the Arkansas Cinema Society, and it's free. Spade came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio this week, and I told her that description doesn't sound like a comedy. (laughs) <laughs> it is a dark dark movie um but it is a it is a film that was written with a lot of affection and levity and hopefully that comes across as well where are some of the dark places will go well for us from the beginning it's always been a suicide prevention film um our crew is coming together after working on other projects together and we've lost a number of people over the years in our personal life uh in our sort of artistic world um and so for us um it's about saving lives and that's one of the dark places the film goes um both of our main characters hit a crossroad to where they have decided that it's no longer valuable to be here Um, That's something we want to talk about, but it's also fueled by other things. Um, We have a character who is abusing drugs and alcohol in a very specific way and a desire to numb pain, Um, and the film covers that as well. The table read that will take place at Theater Squared, people will hear the script? Yes, people will hear it in its entirety from beginning to end. Um, and go along that emotional journey with us. What can you? What can a creator get out of a table read that's in front of an audience? I know when you do table reads, once a cast is selected, there's a reason for that, right? It's the initial rehearsal process. But in front of an audience, what do you get? Well, there's so many different versions of it, even with an audience. Um, I've been to table reads where the purpose of it was to give feedback on the script or just to put the script on its feet so so we could hear what's funny, what's not funny. You know, watching something or hearing something in front of a live audience gives you that sort of immediate feeling of what's working and what's not working. Are you getting the reaction you want Um, in a way that theater does so well? But in film, you don't really get that immediate feeling, especially when you're in the editing process and you've watched these scenes over and over and over again. So we're we're borrowing from the theater experience to get that uh, knee-jerk reaction and also um, to expose the story to this community.
So when I've looked, when I've read screenplays, of course, screenplays are not written to be read for entertainment, right? They're instructional, so it'll, you know, pan to this or I don't know, fade to that. Excuse my very <laughs> elementary <laughs> film terms here. But will we hear that at the table read, or is it more like a theater? So you'll hear all of the instructions. You'll hear we have someone set aside um, to read those in between. Where are we? Um, And I think they really inform what's in between. So the dialogue and what's happening with the characters, where we are, what time of day it is, all of that informs um, and contextualizes what the characters are experiencing. So we will hear that. So what happens after the table read? Well, uh, in our version of it, we're just going to have a champagne toast and people will be able to mingle and talk to the artist. And um, we may be able to get some impressions from the audience that way. But it's definitely not as in-depth as you may experience other times where an audience will ask questions about the story and get feedback. Um, That part we're not doing. And then as we look to weeks and months ahead, what happens with the project? Well, um, our hope is that we are able to go ahead and film the project. One of the purposes of doing the table read is to expose it to this community and stakeholders in this community because this is uh, in an environment that is very keen on supporting art, supporting artists, supporting the independent voice, um, which is part of the reason why I'm here. Um, I moved here from Los Angeles uh, to mount this film and to make it, and part of the reasons why I chose this region is because there is such a priority on arts and supporting artists. So ideally what would come out of this is we would find our people. It's kind of like dating where um, as an artist you're looking for supporters, you're looking for benefactors, you're looking for partners, um, and we're looking for the people who are going to connect with the story, connect with what we want the story to do in this world and what we want the story to do for this region and this community. You know, for many of us, it sounds counterintuitive. Wait, you left L.A., where the film capital of the world, to come to Northwest Arkansas? Yes. Well, um, actually, I had never even considered this region. I, it just would have never crossed my mind. But um, one of my creative partners lived here, and uh, we had been talking about the film on the phone for months on end. And she was saying, you know, maybe you should consider here. You have to come out here and visit. I was like, oh, oh. Okay. Um, And when I did come to visit, what I found was uh, absolutely beautiful landscape, different types of terrain, um, and a warm and um, accepting type of people. And that's the kind of world that you want to put your crew in. As a director, I feel very protective of my team. And so I want to put them in a place where they are going to be safe where they're going to be able to do their best work, and where we can take very good care of them. I realize you're early in this process, but I'm imagining as a director, and when you said terrain, this made me think this, you're probably already looking at some places going, oh, well, that could work there. All the time. (laughs) All the time. Every time I'm in my car. Absolutely. When you're a director, does does this project ever leave you? Oh, God. Um, I mean, do you dream about it? I mean, I'm being like, literally, do you have dreams about how it will work or how it will go? It it never leaves me. Some of it is dreams. Some of it is nightmares. <laughs> um, I mean, I moved here in 2022, January, like January 1st, 2022. 
Um, I was lucky enough to be one of the recipients of the Work Lives Here grant. And um, I very much expected this project to be done in a calendar year and then decide what to do next. And it just has taken so long. Fundraising is an up and down challenge. Um, crew is up and down challenge. Um, and I, I think maybe naively thought that it would happen in the time that I planned it, and it just it hasn't. So um, I would be remiss to say that the process hasn't been both so exciting and also very heartbreaking. It's all of the things. I would imagine one of the challenges, even though you say this is a region that embraces art, film is not something that has happened much here. You do have the Arkansas Cinema Society. You do have some studios now. But let's wait. We're not Atlanta. We're not Vancouver, let alone L.A. So imagine fundraising can sometimes be a challenge because people will look at you and go, what now? A movie here? Right. Well, when there isn't a long-standing film business tradition, even if there's been a lot of production, if there hasn't been a long-standing film business tradition, um, the reputation of filmmaking being something that takes people's money from them can precede mm-hmm. your project. Um, and so there are other businesses that are more known in the community that have been lucrative for everyone involved. And um, so it really takes me sitting down with someone and saying, okay, this is the waterfall of this project. I chose this genre because horror films statistically and for hundreds of years have done better in the box office and other films. I chose this subject matter because I know um, that it will move through our world and do the sort of philanthropic work that all of us yearn to do. Um, And I've studied the market and I understand even before writing the first page of this movie, I studied the market to decide um, who is the audience for this film, how much it should cost so it doesn't overbear the marketplace so that it can make a great return for everyone involved, um, both on the business and creative sides. It took me, you know, the movie is called Late Bloomers, and (laughs) and I feel like a late bloomer very much in my career. And at this point, I wasn't willing to only make... um, a creative thrust forward. I knew that in order to make this work and hopefully to make up for lost time, that it had to be really firing on all cylinders. It had to be a beautiful thing. Um, That's what art should be in the world. It has to be a beautiful thing. Um, It has to say something compelling. And it has to make its money back with interest and over and above that. Um, And... Everything about this project was crafted to hit all of those. I wonder what adjective or adjectives you would describe, use to describe what you're doing. Because when I hear someone moving from L.A. to northwest Arkansas, where they'd never, you'd visited, but had never lived, and to pursue this dream, I would think of brave and confident. What do you think? Because um. there are a lot of us who wouldn't do this. We'd want to. But we wouldn't be able to. Well, you know, I'm a I'm a big believer that every decision you make can be unmade, and that nothing in life is permanent. So um, I I moved to LA by myself. I moved to Brooklyn by myself. I moved to Austin by myself. And it is a little scary, mostly on the personal level of like, how am I going to find friends and how am I going to meet people um, and all of that. I've never lived in the middle of the country before, and it's 
definitely been a culture shock in some of the best ways and some of the worst ways. Mm-hmm. Um, my What I would say to anyone who's thinking of or dreaming about doing something sort of outside of their comfort zone is that if you do not love it, you can always undecide it. But you have to, you have to try. Yeah. We're going to put Spade Robinson on retainer to just be in this building. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Best of luck. Let's stay in touch. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Spade Robinson and other actors will host a public reading of her script, Late Bloomers, Saturday at 1 o'clock at Theater Squared. Much more about the film can be found at latebloomersmovie.net. Part of the mission of the Music Education Initiative is to provide training and inspiration for careers in music and entertainment. Friday night, they're teaming with the Fayetteville Public Library to honor somebody who keeps the local music scene healthy, Brian Crown, the owner of George's Majestic Lounge, the vice president of the Walmart app. He'll be honored with the Friend of the Community Award. Yesterday, Orson Weems, executive director of the Music Education Initiative, and David Johnson, executive director of the Fayetteville Public Library, came to KUAF. I asked David how Friday night's event called A Crowning Affair developed. Well, you know, it's interesting. I've been an admirer of Orson and what he's been doing in the community um, with his music education initiative. I mean, we've had the opportunity to work together together in a, in a few areas. Um, and I knew his interests and, and I knew his background and I knew um, the level of talent that he can introduce to the community and I've also been thinking about the event center and how we built that primarily um, at the library as, as a, a venue for live music. We have done so many beautiful things over there, galas and theater. Um, lectures. And lectures. And th- but where we have really not hit our stride um, has been in the live uh, concert uh, music venue. Roots last year there I thought was beautiful. I mean, it was, it was showing us what was capable um but we hadn't we hadn't really done it yet and so i just mentioned that to orson before you know it his wheels were spinning and uh he he uh started making some connections and this is where we are this is part of what music education uh initiative does it is and when david asked us the favor library has been such a great community partner for us we've held workshops there uh they want us to come back and the live event Industry is something that is one of the tenets of what the Music Education Initiative is. And that's that's the live events, music and entertainment. And the, the music part of it was something that David and I both said, yeah, and let's click. So I talked with our co-founder, GT, Greg Thompson, GT, and I talked. And we said, well, you know, it's something that we can do in this. There's a, there was a, a particular weekend that was available. And we said, well, why don't we try this? And, and this event would be the event we're talking about is the event to where we wanted to think about putting some of the local talent in place for more people to see it, as well as recognize somebody that's been such an incredible member of the music, entertainment, and live event industry uh, with, with Brian Crown. And, and uh, he, he's somebody that would stay behind the scenes and never, never ask for, you know, that yeah. kind of recognition. A lot of people who like music, who are musicians, who may not quite know 
just who Brian is or what he does. Incredible. Literally a pedigree, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you will. Yeah. Of What do you think, David? I mean, just somebody that was a, a, a musician, producer, somebody that was actually touring with the group uh, uh, that for years plays the saxophone. He has just been around this industry for so long and has helped so many bands, has offered so many different ways for people and bands and their management and their other teams that come here at, at George's Majestic Lounge, the amp and bringing in. I mean, we're, we're a heck of a stop in the middle of the country, in the Midwest, if you will, being down in the South, where these incredible groups are coming to the amp now. It's incredible. So what will we experience Friday night? Well, what's interesting is that it just so happens that the Divas on Fire were available. <laughs> and, and they're such an energetic band. And if folks haven't seen them, they need to come out and see some folks that have been performing a long time or performed a long time that have such energy. And, and it's a mix of just some incredible talent from these divas you've seen them before yeah David? i've seen them before and I, I i think you know there's something in there for everyone it, and, and they're be. super talented yes and, they, and for opening for the divas on fire are it will be the tina cozy band which i experienced and happened to be one of the judges for at the uh, international blues challenge in regional uh down in palm bluff arkansas with the port city blues society down in palm bluff and they actually won the competition and I liked them enough, and I told them one day I would book them. So this is somebody that is coming. They're excited. I just saw them Saturday uh, down at Palm Bluff Fort with at a function uh, down at the Port City Blues Society. And I said, you know what? Let me see if they're available. And I wanted to see. This is some, some younger groups, folks that are familiar with Fayetteville and the Divas. They're familiar with them. And they mm-hmm. said, oh, my gosh, we get to open for the Divas. So you'll experience that. Uh, I'm bringing in a celebrity auctioneer out of out of Denver, and that's the <laughs> the auction divas. So we got two divas <laughs> on stage. Uh-oh. <laughs> so we, we'll have that, and uh, that's Shelly St. John with the auction divas, and uh, she's known around the industry, uh, music, entertainment, and live event industry as someone that has helped a nonprofit. She actually helps other larger groups. I won't go into about her client list, but they can you can go online and find it, but She's helped some incredible bands with their particular charities and to have the audience become a part of and feeling connected more with some of these major rock or blues or uh, uh, pop acts that she works with as a client. And, and uh, she, her information was given to me and we talked about it. And she's actually bringing in some premier trips that we want to have on the live auction that will be incredible. And I hope we can raise some money for that so we can put – uh, our funds raised, the funds raised will help us to continue the production, bringing this new skill or new generation of people that we need skills for this industry. We'll buy instruments, and if there's some young artists or young musicians that want, we'll have um, our, uh, instruments that we can purchase for them. We can put them to work, and we can have, David can always have somebody around that can help with production, audio, video, any of these venues around here. I'm not, I'm not a personnel agency. We help create the skills, and then we know some of the people that we can recommend that some of the people who've gone through our workshops can handle. Orson Weems, David Johnson, thank you so much for coming in. Thank Kyle, you, thank Kyle. you for having us. A crowning affair is Friday night at the Fayetteville Public Library. Doors are at 6, live music at 7. You can find out more by following the Music Education Initiative on Facebook and on Instagram.
On the next Science Friday, this summer's COVID wave has been a wake-up call for many people who felt like the pandemic was over. Just because it's not an emergency anymore doesn't mean that it's not still a problem and doesn't mean that it's not something we should still take seriously and try to avoid. How concerned should we be about this wave and what's next for vaccines? All on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Science Friday from 1 until 3 Friday afternoon on KUAF. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Springdale, and Nail. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich and Daniel Carruth. Additional reporting today provided by Jack Travis. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Our underwriting director at KUAF, Ryan Bercy. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Join us tomorrow. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents Annie Leibovitz at Work. This exhibition includes the photographer's iconic pictures from Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, and Vogue, as well as new portraits made just for Crystal Bridges. Annie Leibovitz at Work opens September 16th. More at crystalbridges.org. KUAF is supported by Mockingbird Kitchen, offering indoor dining, patio dining, online ordering, and curbside pickup, Wednesday through Sunday. Modern Ozark dishes available for lunch, dinner, weekend brunch, and catering. Mockingbirdkitchen.com for information.